0: We're going to vote on the new members um, in a quick meeting right after church. And so, uh, Papa, will you pray for us, and we will we'll have at it.
1: Thank you, Jerry. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, uh, be with us today in your spirit as we um, tackle this 2,000-year-old text about spiritual giftedness, and particularly prophecy. Um, it, uh, it's controversial, uh, somewhat, and, uh, guide us as we navigate, the, the portals of your word to, uh, uh, reveal truth and, uh, bless us this afternoon, uh, in our discussion and, uh, of prophecy in Jesus name. Amen.
0: Amen. Mark, how about starting us wherever you think we should start? <laughs>
2: that's, that's, that's a good,
3: uh, good way to begin. You just got set up, man. So
2: we, we, this week, we're going to talk about uh, prophecy, and especially uh, New Testament prophecy. Then, Lord willing, next Sunday, we will talk about the gift of tongues, speaking in, in tongues. And... Um, I, you, may have, you may have some different backgrounds represented. I don't know where everybody is coming from in this, but there's, there's oftentimes a lot of confusion, uh, not a lot of certainty about some of these issues, and um, we, we uh, want to begin by saying that um, Certainly, genuine believers can disagree on this issue. That, that, that's for sure. And some of my favorite living pastors and Christian writers and theologians would hold a different view than the one that we uh, here today hold and that we'll be arguing for. Uh, we don't argue for ours arrogantly or some kind of self righteous sort of thing, but uh, we, we do believe that it's an important issue. And one of the reasons why this is important is. Whether or not uh, prophecy, we'll we'll be talking about prophecy today, whether or not prophecy uh, continues today, or whether or not it has ceased uh, earlier in church history, does truly make a pretty big difference in in some regards. And it it could become, uh, let's just say that the position, because I guess we'll, spoiler alert, we'll just give our position now, that we we do believe that the miraculous speech gifts of prophecy and tongues uh, have ceased. And we're going to spend the next two weeks unpacking why that is and why we believe that. Also, just for a footnote, uh, and this is not planned, this is just the way things were providentially, my sermon text next week is all about New Testament prophecy as well. And so, we, we're to, we have it in Sunday school, and also next Sunday, the whole sermon is about New Testament prophecy as well. So, you may get more than you bargained for by the, by the time the next month is over. But th- those will be topics we'll be talking about as we go. Uh, Greg, why, what, what else would you say about why this topic matters?
3: Um… Wow, well, thanks. Um, yeah, we have one, one uh, session to do this. Um, why this matters is, is because our God is a God who speaks, and how we expect God to speak to us is a big deal. Um, and so if God is speaking in ways other than through the right exposition and application of Scripture, then that affects how we expect God to work. It, it, it affects Um, what we seek when we pray, um, how we relate to one another. Um, It does touch on the whole issue of the sufficiency of scripture. Um, And yeah, and and I, I will say too, like it has to come down to exegesis, like dealing with the text. What does the text actually say? Not what do we want it to say? Not not, you know, where is our heart at in terms of what we're used to, what feels good or feels familiar, but what does the text actually say? I say this because this is one of those issues where, like Mark said, we will agree, disagree with some people that we respect a lot, like Wayne Grudem. I think Wayne Grudem is completely wrong on this. We love his, his uh, Bible doctrine book. We love his bigger systematic theology. But I just think he's wrong on this. Um, John Piper, one of my heroes, one of the ones that, one of the men that God used probably more than anyone else to help me grow in terms of not just my knowledge of God's sovereignty, but of God's glory and our joy in that, um, and and also just sticking with the text. I mean, Piper is a gifted expositor of Scripture, and so you know I, I'm filling in a few things here that I didn't mention to you guys, but you know it's one of those things you have somebody who really impacts you and you want to think, well, if they get certain parts of scripture, right, they got to get everything right. And initially I was like, well, whatever Piper says on this, I'm going to agree with. But as I started studying I was like the same rigor that he uses on other aspects of the Bible short circuits on this issue. I just think he goes astray on it. Um, and so it's a big issue. It it, it does, um, define how a church is going to operate. Um, If you practice the spiritual gifts, prophecy tongues, and other things, the the supernatural speech gifts, and those kinds of things, it affects your church worship service, what goes on in that worship service. Um, And if we don't, like like here at North Ave, we we do not believe these things are in operation, then that affects how we do things here, how we expect God to speak to us as a church. We don't expect God to be giving new revelation or words that, that individuals need to stand up and share to our congregation, the way we expect God to speak is through the, the faithful preaching and application of Scripture, and it's one of those things. You can be genuine believers and disagree on this, but I could not go to a church that practiced these. I couldn't do it um, because it, it changes enough to where if you believe differently, you would be highly uncomfortable uh, on a permanent basis.
2: And if I, if I can add to that, uh, totally agree with that. One of the things that makes this particularly important is, when you have credible voices like Grudem, John Piper, Don Carson, uh, and others, you could list, Sam Storms is another big one, who promote continuation of these gifts, you have really credible people who take the Bible very seriously promoting this. Uh, Dwayne Grudem did his doctoral thesis on this topic, I believe it was his doctoral thesis, and he wrote a book on it in the 80s that's become very popular and influential. It's influenced all kinds of of up-and-coming pastors today. The, the problem here is these guys are so solid on so many things and so reputable that they actually are opening a door on something that we think is not really there, and it, leads, it, can, it can lead to the worst abuses of this gift that, that even Piper and Carson would, would disagree with, and Grudem would not want, these, these really extreme versions of this. That, so, when you have credible voices giving, giving the okay to something that's, that we don't think exists anymore, it, it allows people to take it even further than, than even they would think mm-hmm. it, it's right to go. Good.
1: Papa? Historically, uh, you guys, uh, perfect, perfect point. But historically, too, this, this has not been an issue in the early, well, in the early church because the gifts were given to the first century church in and, and subsequent periods of time uh, for the common good of the body. Uh, at a time when Christianity was just being born. Uh, The reformers take a similar position that we take. Uh, It hasn't been probably what, the last 100, 120 years with the birth of the charismatic Pentecostal movement, the Azusa Street Revival. All of this has come to the forefront. And the thing that makes this, again, more difficult to dissect, I guess, is that this charismatic movement and pentecostalism is one of the largest growing elements in our world mm-hmm. and in certain continents and places too so uh, it's very very important that we we talk about this and we give you uh, um, uh, what what the bible says about this
0: yeah martin could you help us to understand where are the two? Could you differentiate between the two different ways of understanding prophecy? Yes. So if, there's probably more in two, but <clears throat> maybe the two main ones.
2: Yes. If you if you want to get your grasp on how to even start this conversation, uh, after I, I personally spent probably not enough time, but I've spent a lot of time on this the last few years. Uh, this topic keeps coming back for me, and um, Kelly might even say i have obsessed over it because it's come. I just I, I've gotten really into this several times recently, and and I think. What what both sides, in terms of the respectable, both sides, you know what I'm saying? Uh, There's there's fringe people, but in terms of the respectable representatives of both sides of prophecy today, here is the million-dollar question. And this is the question that if you decide one way on this, you're going to go one direction. It's like dominoes. Once you go one way, everything (laughs) follows. And if you go the other way, everything follows the other way. Is New Testament prophecy, like Old Testament prophecy, infallible? That's the question. Is New Testament prophecy like Old Testament prophecy, infallible. Grudem's entire argument, and I'll tell you, I mean, there, there, are, there are aspects to his argument that you need to really think through. I mean, it, you don't just write this off. I mean, his chapter does a good job explaining his perspective. But Grudem would say Old Testament prophets were infallible. He would point to Deuteronomy 13 and 18, especially the end of Deuteronomy 18 that says if a prophet speaks something and it does not come true, he is to be put to death. And so, if there's error in the prophecy, the prophet is not a true prophet. He is not a true prophet with errors, he's a false prophet, and he is to be removed from the people through death. Um, Today excommunication might be a closer equivalent rather than that form, but that was Israel's way of dealing with it. So no way was there any error. And then the prophets write the Bible, right? It was called the Law and the Prophets. Uh, You know, when Ezekiel spoke, it was, thus saith the Lord. When Isaiah spoke, thus saith the Lord. When Jeremiah spoke, thus saith the Lord. These were the very words of God coming out of their mouths, and if anything was wrong with what they said. They were a false prophet. As you move into the New Testament era, the question is, does the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, is it picking up where the Old Testament left off? Is is this essentially the same gift? Is it the same thing? So that the New Testament prophets are also speaking God's very words. Grudem would say, no, and if I can just begin with his argument, part of this, and we can respond to it. Number one, Grudem would say this, the word prophet, the Greek word like propheteo, was watered down between the Old and New Testament period. And it began to have many more meanings than simply speaking direct words from the Lord. And so he gives examples of how it's used in different ways. And he says, listen, by the time of the New Testament, we needed a better word than prophet because it was watered down. And so Jesus picked the word apostle. And the apostle word is the equivalent of the Old Testament prophet. So Old Testament prophets are infallible. Apostles can speak and teach infallibly. But prophets is a lesser term. It means something lesser in the New Testament era. And so the argument is that a genuine prophet in the New Testament will speak messages from God, revelations from God. The Holy Spirit reveals something, maybe brings something to mind, to use Grudem's language. He brings an image to mind or a word to mind or or, or a a scene into your mind or in a dream or in a vision or whatever, and you have this prompt in in your mind. And when you say it, that's a prophecy. It's a revelation. It's an image or something. And as you put it into your language, you are fallible as you communicate what the Spirit gave you. The Spirit is not making a mistake, the Spirit gives you something, but as you articulate it out of your mind, into your mouth, and out to other people, you are putting it into your own human words. And so, although the essence of what you're saying, the gist of it, is from the Spirit, there may be errors in the details that you added by your own mistake. And this allows Gruden, Piper, Carson, and others to protect the sufficiency of Scripture, at least in their own mind. Because if we have people today speaking infallible words from God, like apostles today with a capital A, or prophets today speaking infallibly fresh revelation from God, then we threaten the finality of the Bible. Because then, if, if Greg can speak a direct word from God, not from the Bible, then we have to add that to the end of… Like, let's add that to… Like, that, that, that now is rival to Scripture. In the same way that Catholic teaching would put tradition equal to Scripture, uh, uh, this kind of prophecy would put prophecy next to Scripture, and that would be terrible. And even Grudem admits that… Uh, Grudem does not want to do that. So, he says it's fallible prophecy in the New Testament, infallible in the Old. That's his way of trying to protect the sola scriptura doctrine that we all believe, that Scripture alone is the final
0: Word of God. That things, and, and Greg, you may have somewhere you want to go with that, but the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear you say this, they say, well, then how is that different than teaching? What's the, how do you compare uh, the two,
3: like what we're doing right now? Let's come back to that, um, yeah, stick on the apostle okay. prophet thing. Um, Saying that Old Testament prophet is equivalent to a New Testament apostle, it really just seems like an arbitrary thing in order to keep prophecy what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, God is consistent, the Bible is consistent. Why would there be a change like that that's never explicitly identified? You have to infer that um, into the text of Scripture to say, well, apostle and Old Testament prophet are the same. There, there's nothing making that connection. There's Old Testament prophets, there's New Testament prophets. Um, and, and you, again, you have to infer something into the text that's not in the text, at least it seems to me, in order to say, well, well, apostles, well, that's really Old Testament prophets, and now we got this new category of New Testament prophets. It just doesn't make any sense to do that unless you have an agenda that, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean when I say this, unless you have an agenda about what you want the New Testament to say, okay, I want it to say that prophecy is something different than Old Testament, so we've got to We've gotta get our way around the connection between the word prophet, New Testament, prophet, Old Testament. No, 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 there's really not a connection between prophets. It's actually prophets, apostles, and then, and it's like that, that is just completely arbitrary in order to, to try to justify something else that you wanna teach.
2: Let me throw a text in here. Turn to Acts chapter two, just really quickly. Acts two is the Pentecost sermon. This is the giving of the spirit. We, we, we went through this a year ago. Uh, and just look quickly with me at Acts two. Remember, everyone begins to speak in tongues and other languages, but, but look at what Peter says. Verse 14, people think remember that people think they're drunk because they're speaking in foreign languages, and it seems very strange. It was strange. It was unusual. Acts 2.14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Verse 15, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet. So, there's the word. You see the word prophet there, Old Testament prophet… The prophet Joel, in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your older men shall dream dreams. Even all my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now stop. stop. Now listen carefully here. He is quoting an Old Testament prophet before the term prophet has been watered down, according to Grudem, right? He's going back to Joel. And Joel says, in the, before the term prophet's been watered down, even Grudem admits, this is before the term has supposedly been watered down, Joel says, in the last days, everybody's going to get the Spirit, and tons of people, men and women, are going to prophesy. How could that meaning of prophecy have a different meaning than the normal Old Testament usage of the word prophecy? He's quoting an Old Testament prophet. He calls Joel a prophet, and then says, Joel says, in the last days, your sons and daughters will prophesy. It's now happening in Pentecost in the New Testament. When the, when the term supposedly means something different. It doesn't sound like it means something different, does it? These people are prophesying as Joel, an Old Testament prophet, predicted. It's being fulfilled now in the New Testament, New Covenant era. So what I see is a complete consistency. The use of prophecy in the Old Testament is being used in the New Covenant era after the ascension of Jesus, and there's no distinction at all. This is just like Joel was a prophet. These people will prophesy just like Joel did, and you'll see in, like, you could go to a lot of verses. In Luke 1, the Christmas story, it says, Zechariah, filled with the Spirit, prophesied, and suddenly he's speaking and he's using… He's, what he says is an inspired message. It's recorded in Luke chapter 1. It is infallible. And so, uh, over and over you start seeing the use of the New Testament word prophet is being used the same way and in the same context as Old Testament prophecy.
0: Thing
1: Papa? Um. Why don't we go to, to some other specific uh, examples in, in Acts, like Agabus' uh, prophecy and that type and
2: Agabus, thing? My sermon next week's all on Agabus. Okay. So, can we put that off for the next sure. Sunday? Sure. <laughs> Do I have to wait till next Sunday? <laughs> 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 this is what part of answer. Just let answer. Let me just mention that. The, the sermon next week's right. about a guy named Agabus, a prophet in the New Testament. And Grudem argues this is the one example he claims to have of a New Testament true prophet who makes a mistake in details when he prophesies. And that will be next Sunday's sermon. We'll we'll deal with that. I do not think he makes a mistake. But that's Grudem's one example of what he thinks he can show as as a fallible prophet in the New Testament.
3: Okay. Where would you like to go, Greg? Greg? Um, I'm trying to remember the reference for this. I believe it's in Ephesians when he talks about built on the foundation yeah. of where. Ephesians 2.
2: It's Ephesians it's 2. The, Thank you. The... Uh,
3: yeah. So look at Ephesians Peace. 2 here, guys. This is um, an important text in this. Um, Ephesians 2. Where is that up? 20. Uh,
1: 20 you, Mark. to 20.
3: Um, so he's talking about Jew and Gentile coming together. Verse 19 it says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so again, there's a distinction between apostle and prophet um, there, but also you're starting to see that the gift of prophecy in the New Testament had a very specific purpose. It was a foundational purpose, just like Apostle. Okay, And this is important to this uh-huh. argument um, because one of the things, and maybe we're going to go there, maybe not, but when the apostolic generation died, when I say that, that's referring to the generation that gave us the apostles, You know, uh, the 12 that were with Jesus, Paul, all of that. They were the ones tasked with giving us um, the deposit of the gospel, the deposit of truth um, that God wanted us to have. When that generation died out, that special revelation, that special giving of truth died with it. Okay, no other generation was ever tasked with speaking to the church and teaching the church the way the generation of the apostles was. And so, what's interesting, you think about that in terms of a foundation. You build a foundation and you build on the foundation. Okay, um, prophets are included with apostles in that foundation. And so, once the foundation is clearly laid, the foundation's done, everything builds upon that. But those gifts, just like apostle, is no longer active in the church. So if apostleship has ceased to be a gift in the church, so has prophecy. Um, And everything that apostles and prophets would have said that we need, God made sure we have in the pages of Scripture. Okay. So there's there's no more revelation to come because God's already given us everything we need because he gave it through the apostles and the prophets as our foundation. That's good because John would have been the last apostle, yes. right, when he died in mm-hmm. whatever AD whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And, and given that that foundation or that cornerstone the verse you just read, it says in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the Spirit takes over and 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 Rebele- is is revealing through Scripture. Uh, the Scripture was. You may disagree, some, some of you, but largely completed by the end of the first century. It wasn't bound in a neat little book, but the letters were pretty much completed by the time John died.
2: Yeah, everything oh, yeah. in the Bible was finished being written by about 95 AD. That's right, that's right. Absolutely. So, so
1: the word was out there, it just wasn't neatly bound like this, and it had not been read by the, by the total church at that time. So there was subject to interpretation by, even uh, subsequent, I guess, to the apostles would be the, quote, church fathers, those successors. that
2: Yes, and, and someone may object. Maybe you're already thinking this. I used to wonder this. Could this be the New Testament apostles and the Old Testament prophets? Could you be thinking that? Like, okay, we agree that, yeah, the, 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 the church is built on the foundation of the apostles' New Testament and prophets' Old Testament. So now it's actually not talking about this whole discussion. That cannot be true. Uh, let me let me show you why. Chapter three, very next few verses. L- look at verse. Uh, I'll just start in verse uh, four. Actually, let's start in verse one. For for this reason, I Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given me for you, how the mystery was made known to be me by revelation. That sounds like prophecy talk. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not… Now, listen, verse 5. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Think Old Testament. It was not made known then, as it has now been revealed, New Testament, to the holy apostles and prophets… These have to be New Testament prophets. The the, the revelation coming through these apostles and prophets was something not revealed in previous generations. It cannot be Old Testament prophets. It has to be the New Testament apostles and prophets, which is why he doesn't put prophets first in the order. He puts apostles first, then prophets, because they're New Testament apostles and prophets. And if you keep going in Ephesians, I really do… I'm I'm not… Again, I'm not trying to make fun of Grudem, but I sincerely think this is an extremely weak point in his book on this topic. But look at chapter 4. So have you been noticing the link between apostles and prophets? He's already done it twice. He's going to put them together a third time in the same letter. Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, this has to be the same two groups. Three times he said apostles and prophets, apostles and prophets. Now he's going to say it again, apostles and prophets. It's the same two groups. Grudem tries to differentiate and make them two completely different groups, and it just doesn't work, I don't think. But look at chapter 4. This one to me supports what Greg was saying a moment ago. Verse 11, Jesus gives gifts to men when he ascended on high. 4.11. And He, Jesus, gave, this is after His ascension, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, j- just pause. Look back at 11. He gave, Jesus gave, after His ascension, the, the, the church. What did He give? The apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, now listen to this carefully carefully. Everybody essentially agrees in a certain kind of cessationism. Everybody who's a genuine Christian, I think, would look at verse eleven and say, "Well, at least one of those gifts has ceased—the gift of apostle." Right? Who thinks there's a capital A Peter Apostle walking around today? If you do, that's heresy. That's a cult. You're a cult leader. No, you no, no. You no. can find
1: We're, them on YouTube,
2: though. Yeah, you can find somebody <laughs> on YouTube talking about this, I am sure. Um, hopefully, it's no one you know. Uh, but, but so here, the, Jesus, when he, when he ascended, gave gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Everybody agrees evangelists, shepherds, teachers still exist. And everybody agrees apostleship has ceased. The debate now is where does the cessation stop? Does it stop after apostle, or does it stop after apostles and prophets? Well, if 2.20 says apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, giving inspired revelation in 3.5 that was not previously revealed, then just like the gift of apostles with an inerrant speech gift was fulfilled at the death of John and ceased after that time, the gift of prophet would likewise need to cease around the same time period in the same time frame because infallible speech gifts are no longer necessary because we have the foundation recorded. Everything we need for life and godliness is in this book. This is the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the New Testament and the Old Testament with the Old Testament prophets. We have everything we need so that Paul can say, all scriptures God-breathed, making you thoroughly equipped for every good work. The sufficient Word of God. We, we don't need a modern-day apostle or a modern-day prophet to speak infallibly because all that we need is here. That's the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. All we need for life and godliness is contained in this book. Well,
3: and I, th- I hope you can see, like, we haven't even gotten to the controversial chapter yet, 1 Corinthians 14. <laughs> but if you, if you go to 1 Corinthians 14 with the right understanding in place, you have to read it differently. The only reason I think 1 Corinthians 14 is so controversial is because people assume they they get it wrong in other places. Um, And so, do we want to go there now, 1 Corinthians 14? We jump in, yeah. Um, So turn 1 Corinthians 14, but keep in mind what we've we've already been pointing out. Um, Apostles are not the same thing as Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets, counterpart, New Testament prophets— Prophets in the Old Testament speak infallibly without error. They can't make a mistake. New Testament prophets, the same in light of what we just looked at in Ephesians 2, 3, and 4. So we have to have that understanding of prophecy in place in order to make sense of 1 Corinthians 14. If we don't, we're going to go, we're going to get confused. We can go astray. We can reach conclusions that might seem reasonable, but they're actually not. So 1 Corinthians um, 14 Um, Where does he talk about prophecy? Um, Let's just start reading in verse 1. It covers tongues. We're going to cover tongues next week, but we're going to try to zero in on the prophecy aspect. He says this, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, but for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Can I jump yeah, in here? go ahead. So, look, look at verse one again, because this is serious stuff here. Verse one, pursue love
2: and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. That's a command If the gift continues today, it would be wrong to not pursue the gift. Now, look at the end of the chapter, verse 39, so my brothers earnestly… this is a command… Earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, do you see how this is significant? Because if what we're teaching is incorrect on this, okay, if what we're teaching is wrong, we are asking you to disobey those two verses. That, that, the stakes are high, right? That, that, sim, similarly to the, you know, the Old Testament says you've got to circumcise your children on the eighth day, your male children. It, it, well, we no longer believe that that's something we have to do, but we have to figure out where this is in redemptive history and whether those commands still apply to us in the same way. But I, I want to I say here, I, I want to argue against a middle position that a lot of Christians have that I think is the least logical of all the positions. So just hang with me here for a second. There's the Grudem-Piper position that says, these gifts continue, therefore we are commanded to pursue them. That's at least consistent with itself on that part, okay? I disagree. The other view that we're arguing for is that the gifts no longer continue, therefore we should not pursue them. They don't… They're not there to be found, so don't pursue them now because we're not at the time of the Corinthian church. We're not living in the 50s AD. We're after the death of the apostles. But the middle position is the one that I think maybe most Christians hold, which is this. I don't want to put God in the box. Who am I to say that God couldn't cause someone to prophesy… Who am I to say God couldn't cause someone to speak in tongues? He's all-powerful. He's beyond my knowledge. He could do whatever He wants. I don't think it's for me. I mean, it's not something I see. I don't know that it's going to happen to me. I don't really… I'm not going to pursue it. But man, if God wants to do what He wants to do, let Him do it. I'm not going to bind God in a box. That sounds humble. It's the least logical of the three positions, because that view says, I'm open to the gifts. I think the gifts probably do happen somewhere. At least, I'm not going to stop God, but I'm not going to pursue them personally. Well, that makes. So, if the gifts continue, we have to pursue them. If the gifts don't continue, we should not pursue them. But to say that the gifts probably continue, but I'm not going to pursue them, is, I think, the least logical on its on the face of it than, than any of you. It. So it's got to be a yes or no at the end of the day on on whether to accept or reject.
3: Um. All right. So again, skipping over a lot of, a lot of different things here. Um. One of the points of First Corinthians 14 with prophecy and tongues is prophecy is far preferable. Because it's in a language you can understand. It's in the language that people speak. Um, So first, prophecy is preferable over tongues. That's going to be important for next week. Um, But look in uh, chapter 14. He actually gives instructions um, for prophecy. Look at verse 29. He says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Um, And if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn And be encouraged. And verse 32 is interesting. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Another thing to remember in this is the Corinthian church was not a stalwart example of faithful church practice, they were messed up. Like they got a lot of things wrong. They were confused on a lot of things. They were influenced by the pagan society around them. Um, You go into pagan temples, what are they going to be doing? They're going to be speaking in tongues, ecstatic speeches or speech, you know, gibberish um, and all of that. And they're claiming they're in whatever spirit is leading them. And so the Corinthians were adopting, mimicking some of these pagan practices. Um, And so you come into the church of Corinth and you don't see a New Testament church. You see a, a, well, you see a New Testament church is acting like a pagan assembly. There's no order. There's no structure. Everybody is doing their own thing. Everybody's speaking in tongues. Everybody's prophesying. There's no order. There's nothing. And so when Paul comes in and gives strictures and he says, no, two or three or this, that, and the other, that right there is going to eliminate the vast majority of what's taking place in these churches. So that even if you made a case, tongues or prophecy are still there. It's incredibly rare. It's, it's, it is. Because if you do it the way Paul says, what the Corinthians were experiencing, um, what they were practicing is radically different. And it's not going to keep going that way. So keep that in mind, too. The Corinthians were very confused on a lot of things. And a lot of their practices were not biblical practices, but they were mimicking what the pagans did. And the pagans didn't have order. They didn't have structure um, like what Paul's calling for here.
1: He even says that in in twelve two, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by two mute idols, however you were led. So right there, he he you know in a in a way today it could be even somewhat worse
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: because we got a lot of people walking around that think they're Christians that that would profess to be Christians because they're they're cultural Christians, but they don't know Christ.
3: so mm-hmm. Well, and, and staying there in chapter 12 real quick, look at what he says in verse three. This is significant. Again, remember the context of the Corinthian church. It was a free-for-all, okay? People were saying, the Spirit made me do this, the Spirit led me to say this, the Spirit this. What does Paul have to rebuke them for? Verse three, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Now, why would Paul even have to mention that unless they're actually doing it. And so when we say the Corinthian church was messed up in what they were practicing, that's not an understatement. They thought the spirit of God was leading some of them to say Jesus is accursed. And we know that's absurd. We know that's absurd. And so again, when Paul starts putting parameters on these things, it radically changes what can happen in the Corinthian church.
2: For for those who argue that the Corinthian language of prophet is different from the one in Ephesians, which is kind of what you have to do to try to get out of the connection, because, you know, if if, if Ephesians is crystal clear, you just apply it to 1 Corinthians, and you can tell this gift is infallible if it's done rightly, not, not false prophecy, but done rightly. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. See if this sounds like Ephesians 4.11, a little bit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Twelve twenty-seven. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then He has a different list here, uh, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues, are all apostles, first listed, second listed, are all prophets, third are all teachers. Do, do you hear how similar that is to Ephesians 4? He's given gifts to the church. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, similarly here, and there is no indication that in verse 28, first prophets, second teachers, I mean, excuse me, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, I don't think there's any doubt that he's elevating prophecy to a level right behind apostleship, which which to me would favor an a Ephesians reading of the, these two gifts. They're, they're put together as first and second, one and two. Uh, the, a, 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 Apostle and prophet. And I, I think, again, he's referring to the same thing, which is the infallible speech of a true prophet.
3: Let me make a comment on that because doesn't Grudem say that prophecy is less than the gift of teaching in the church? Yes. Yeah. And so, again, just following the logic and structure of the text, Grudem's argument is undermined um, by the clear teaching of what Scripture's saying there. If, if truly what Paul's doing is saying apostles, prophets, and keeping prophets in that that's, special place. Yeah, there's an order there. Yeah, there's an order there. And it's like, how can you then say if prophecy, Paul, in Paul's mind, prophecy is above teaching because it's actually revealing true, real words from God, how can you then go on to argue, well, actually it's a lesser gift than teaching? Because that's what Grudem says. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, I love Wayne Grudem, but we have blind spots, um, and I think this is one of his. He, just, he cannot see the inconsistency of his approach on this got something good there, Mark? Well, just, there's a debate, a brief debate online of
2: Grudem debating another guy, and uh, I just, I'd never seen it before until yesterday. But in the debate, he has a couple of these quotes from Grudem. He says, "Um, congregational prophecy, which is what he calls this, does not have the authority of God's words. I would counsel people never to make huge life decisions based on prophecy alone. Now, listen to that. This is the primary defender of this view, Grudem, one more time. because prophecy does not have the authority of god 's words. I would counsel people never to make huge life decisions based on a prophecy alone so Grudem will say you should and he said this multiple times you should never say when you're when you 're pro- prophesying in history view you should never say thus says the Lord never say the Lord is saying which I actually appreciate the fact that he puts that caveat on there how much worse would it be if you said this is the lord speaking he 's trying to protect himself from the fact that prophets make mistakes all the time, even in his own context. He will admit many of them have made mistakes. Piper told a story. it mean, this just comes to my mind. This shows you the danger of releasing this in your church. Piper taught on prophecy in the late 80s, early 90s, after being persuaded by Grudem that his view was right. And he said a woman came up to him while his wife, Noelle Piper, was pregnant. Uh, and he said, uh, I guess they didn't know the gender yet. He said, your, your daughter is gonna have a, your, your wife's going to have a daughter, and she's going to die in childbirth. She said that was a prophecy she had gotten from the Lord. Piper said, he said, uh, thank you, I think. He left, he went to his office and wept. And, and then, of course, it ended up, Noel ended up having a son, and she lived through the childbirth. But do you see how horrifically damaging false prophecy… I mean, if, if you, he was doing what Grudem was telling him to do. he was just you, you, Whatever comes to mind, if you feel prompted by the Spirit, go tell someone, this may be from the… I think this is from the Lord. And I, I can tell you stories from different individuals who do this, who, who have told horror stories of the kind of stuff that will start happening. Because suddenly now, we're, we're, whatever Grudem says in, in principle, in practice you end up violating his principle. We're no longer looking here. How much more exciting does it feel to get a direct line from heaven today? Like, well, put your Bible aside and just listen, hear God talk, God tell me, what should I do? How much, how much more exciting does that feel if that were true? And so, I think that some of the excitement of it ends up de-emphasizing the centrality of the Bible, and it can lead to nonsense. I mean, absolute nonsense, harmful things being said, uh, and you could, you could multiply stories of that, but Grudem is trying to protect himself. My, my response to that next Sunday sermon, I'll talk about this more. Agabus, the guy he says is a flawed. New Testament prophet, guess how Agabus starts his prophecy? With the Greek words, thus saith the Holy Spirit. Same Greek words used by the prophet Jeremiah. Uh-oh, we're in trouble now, because Grudem says that's the one thing you can't do when you prophesy fallibly, is you can't say this is what the Holy Spirit is saying. But that's exactly what Agabus does in Acts 21.11. He says, thus says the Holy Spirit, and then he prophesies what Grudem says is a flawed prophecy. Well, it's not a flawed prophecy, but, but if it were, he'd be a false prophet. So that, to me, that just
0: doesn't follow. Good, Papa.
1: The definition, Mark, on page uh, 408, telling prophecy, telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Example of the Piper prophecy. Yeah. Or anything else like that. And we've all had experiences with that, I'm sure. Yeah, that's the danger. Jerry,
2: any thoughts about the danger of the the, the individual sense of what God is telling me day in and day out and what that could do to you?
0: I don't think we're taking the, uh, I don't think if we took that other position, that we're really taking the the depravity of man seriously enough. How do I know that anything I'm thinking, other than directly from Scripture, is really true? I don't know that. The only thing I can say for sure is that all things do work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose, because that's right here. So I can say that for sure. But I can't say for sure that someone's supposed to go to college here or someone's supposed to do whatever outside Scripture. So I just think we're far too confident, anybody that would have, say they can, can prophesy now are far too confident in their own ability to hear what the Lord's truly saying. And, and how, here's another question. How do you test
2: Grudem's version of prophecy? Think about it. It can contain errors. So, an Old Testament prophet, Deuteronomy 13 and 18, how do you test them? If they make mistakes, they're a false prophet. You lose that criterion in the New Testament. So now, some sweet person stands up, and they're trying to be sincere, and they say something that's mixed with error. How do I know if they're just an innocent person making a mistake, or are they actually a false prophet? There's no way now to evaluate what they're saying. You can't really have total certainty of anything that they say because they think it's a prophecy, but it may not be a prophecy. They just think the Lord is bringing this to mind, but it may not be from the Lord. And so I think that the infallible prophecy is very easy to judge. Is it true or false? Did it come true or not? That's easy. But when you allow error in true prophecy, how in the world do you evaluate it? How do you know what details are right? How do you know what Agabus said that was wrong or right or whatever, according to Grudem? So I, to me, in practice, it has so many problems and contradictions.
3: Can I make another comment, going a little beneath the surface on Grudem? um, I don't know if if you're familiar with this or not. Uh, One of my professors at seminary talked about this and I did a little more research. Um, Grudem didn't just come to his position through careful study of the New Testament. Grudem came to his position through experience and then read that experience into the New Testament. What am I saying? There was a movement. Uh, many years ago called the Vineyard Movement, started by a guy named John Wimber. Um, It was very big into signs and wonders and special revelations and healings and demonstrations of power, okay? Grudem, in his intro, like his uh, forward to his um, systematic theology, the bigger book than what we have here, Um, references his parents initially for his faith, John Frame and those at Westminster for his Reformed faith, and then he talks about John Wimber and the Vineyard Movement. I did not know that. Yes, he gives specific credit to them for leading him to his conclusions and helping him on his understanding of the charismatic gifts. So he had experiences that shaped the way he thought, and because he loved those experiences so much, he had to read Scripture to support them. Mm. Okay, that is probably one of the most dangerous things you can do. It, no matter our experience, we let scripture speak for itself and we do not read our experiences into the Bible. If the Bible conflicts with our experiences, we have to either correct or reject what we've experienced. No matter how good we felt, no matter how amazing it was, Grudem fell prey to that um, because of what he experienced with John Wimber in the vineyard churches, well, it was so real. New Testament must teach that somehow. And that did play a factor in his interpretation. It's like fall on your heart right there.
2: And and I'm convinced, uh, going right with what you said, that I didn't know that part of it, but I did know he's had a lot of experiences. I would say that he's taken his experiences of some things that have happened, and he's read prophecy in light of his experience. So he's actually taken the Word and defined it primarily by what he's gone through. I mean, he uses text. At least he claims to use certain text, But I think he's mainly reading his own experience of what he thinks is prophecy back into the Bible rather than letting the Scripture itself define the term for him.
0: Yep. Greg, could you… Pray for us, and uh, and to even know kind of how to interact with someone who maybe uh, doesn't take this position, because we'll run into folks, and you know how to best be um, biblical and how we talk about
3: this. Well, I'll make a comment on that, and then pray. Is that what you're looking That'd for? Be great. Um, the biggest thing is patience, lots and lots of patience. Hmm. It, I mean, we know this ourselves. It's hard to reject experiences that have had big impacts on our life. It's just hard to do it. It's gut-wrenchingly awful if we find out something was wrong. Um, So lots of patience and stick to the text. Stick to the text. Experience, do not allow that to become the judge. Um, Don't allow it to become the judge. Stick to the text, lots of patience, lots of prayer. Um, for God to open eyes to see the consistency of what the New Testament teaches, um, and it could be quick; it could take a while. So, but just be prepared for possibly a long season of working through someone, working with someone through this issue. Um, all right. That being said, let's pray. God, uh, we thank you for your Word, and Lord, it does speak so clearly to these matters. And Lord, I pray that none of us would have any sense of superiority. Um, or arrogance um, against folks like Wayne Grudem and Don Carson and John Piper. God, these are men for whom we are deeply thankful. Um, And Lord, I know I will never be able to fully express the depth of my gratitude for the impact John Piper has made on my life. Um, But Lord, we know that they are astray on this. And um, Lord, I pray that as a church, God, that we would love the consistency of your word Um, and that we would accept uh, what it says about the gift of prophecy in the church, that it is a gift that has ceased. Um, And what we are to devote ourselves to is not looking for words to come into our mind, but to the clear study, teaching, exposition, and application of the Scriptures. Um, Lord, may we always be grounded in what is written, and may that hold the highest priority for us in any issue that we seek to evaluate and base our life on. So help us by the Holy Spirit, and Lord, give us grace for any conversation with anyone that we have who might hold a different opinion. Lord, help us to be patient, to pray for them, and to stick to Scripture no matter what. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: No less controversial. Tongues next (laughs) week.